Did you hear that? No, I did not. <laughs> oh, something falling over downstairs. All right, Uh-oh. next question. Ooh. So they had a... <laughs> you hear cheesy electronic music with a strange vocal track come in? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast has become real life. <laughs> Theremin starts playing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Zach. And this is Matt. Today, we will be discussing a 1996 horror parody humor classic, Scream. This film by Wes Craven follows a group of teenagers in a town where there is a psychopathic killer on the loose uh, who is given the name Ghostface. There is also a mystery surrounding the death of the main character's mother. And so it's kind of a whodunit at the same time as a thriller and yeah it does such a good job of parodying horror tropes i think that it does parody like certain things in the horror genre really well but it doesn't really at least to my knowledge blatantly parody any single move from a specific film or franchise right the thing that i like so much about this movie is that it really is self-aware it is an incredibly meta slasher horror movie in that all of the characters in the actual film are aware of horror as a genre where in most horror movies they sort of forget that slashers ever existed or were ever a thing and so what that allows this movie to do in that meta context is allow the characters to make seemingly good intelligent choices but still fall victim to either the circumstances of their own you know demise uh, or fall victim as like that of ignorance rather than of incompetence Mm -hmm. because if you if you take a look at the movie as a whole drew barrymore in the start of the movie has, you know, one of the most iconic scenes, I think, in film history. That scene where the ghost face killer calls her and they have the back and forth where she gets the killer of Friday the 13th wrong is so striking. And there's not a lot, I think, that Drew Barrymore does wrong in that mm-hmm. film. She locks all the doors in her house. She grabs a knife for her self-defense. She's ultimately overpowered. That's a circumstance that she can't control, especially knowing, spoilers, there are two killers in this film. Mm-hmm. So for the sake of narrative, she's just a victim of what happens rather than like her own stupidity, which is yeah. so often the case in horror movies. And yeah. I love that this movie picks on it so well. And it also really hits on, I think, a couple of elements that are a little bit more realistic. So, for mm-hmm. example, when the parents get home and the ghost face killer is chasing her, it would have been really easy for her to have been stabbed in the back while they were running. But because there is sort of this idea that the the two characters have watched and understand horror movies, in a real world, a person is not going to get stabbed and then go silent. They're going to scream or yell out. And so mm-hmm. 
because the parents are home, whoever is responsible for doing the killing in the first one actually grabs, covers her face, and then stabs her. Mm -hmm. And then they have a little fight scene. It's not an instant death. She gets choked, which, you know, that can severely damage the vocal cords. So when she tries a moment later to shout to her parents, she's simply unable to. It's a lot more thoughtful of a death. And in that way, I think that it is significantly more impactful to an audience that has grown familiar with how killers operate. Yeah, I was going to say this is it's refreshingly realistic uh, in a lot of ways where, like, like you said, they're aware of like the tropes of slashers. And it's like, realistically, if you were seemingly living out the plot of a, a slasher film, you would probably refer to that. You'd probably be like, wow, this is just like a slasher film. And like, you wouldn't do the stupid things that people do in a lot of other horror movies. Like, I don't know, for instance, like, go and check out the scary sound instead of, you know, running in the other direction. (laughs) Especially when you know that there is a serial killer on the loose. And that's always, like, a big turnoff for me. I won't necessarily, like, denounce a movie completely if if it has that going on, but it doesn't make it as scary because it's like, well, that's not what I would do. So why would I be scared of this situation? Because I would never put myself in this situation. So... I'm glad that they kind of work their way around it here and they actually deny that trope. Also, they don't make the killer invincible. Right, exactly. That's actually exactly what I was about to talk about. It's like that the realistic nature of both Billy and Stu when they're in the the costume is like they're (laughs) they're getting knocked around just as much as any other person would be. It's not like a Michael Myers where you hit him and he just stands there completely solid. It's, oh, they, they have some kind of like some give to them. You know, that someone punches them, they fall over. Uh, they trip over mm-hmm. stuff. They, you know, have a hard time getting through a window. And it's it's almost comical, which matches kind of the mix of the humor and the horror in this. But it's also just like more realistic and, and kind of more frightening at the same time because of that, where it's like, oh, yeah, this is like how an actual killer would go about the world. I think that that, too, allows for the viewer of the film to gain that same level of, like, hopefulness that we get to watch Mm -hmm. uh, Sidney Prescott experience. She is the final girl, but she is not helpless. Where you look at movies like Halloween, you look at movies like Friday the 13th, the final girl in those, it is by sheer deus ex machina that they survive to the end. It is through no device of their own. Like, they are not putting in, (laughs) like, a reciprocal effort. Whereas Sidney Prescott is, throughout the entire thing, putting up a 100% fight. And she has a chance. Yeah, which is, like, another thing that kind of refuses the tropes, right? Because she's actually, like, putting up a fight against the killer. But also, the killer attacks her almost, like, immediately. The character of Sydney is introduced. They talk about the murders that happened the night before. And she's like the one that he calls next and attacks next. It's just like denies this this trope of, oh, you, you know, the final girl is the last one to actually gain the killer's attention. 
Like she's she's the main character, yes, and she's obviously the one who's gonna live because you know she's the one we're following the whole time. But it's also like has to do with the whole mom murder plot line, and like it's her boyfriend that's the one that did it, and a lot of stuff is revealed at the end that makes it much more genuine and believable. The, the tropes <laughs> are made fun of in this, I think, for that reason of like, hey, we can do it better, you know. Even though it is Wes Craven, and like Wes Craven did play into the negative aspects of the tropes at the same time so it's like strange in that way it's self-referential and in a way where not only do we get to see sort of the self-referential behavior of the film play out in front of us but also just the references back to Wes Craven's own cliches it's really clear that he understood the criticisms that he was getting and was able to make a movie surrounding that. And I think that Nightmare on Elm Street is another great example of Wes Craven being able to take parts of the genre and manipulate them in a way that sort of subverts the tropes. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do it as well in Nightmare on Elm Street. But to be fair, that was 12 years before this film. There were a lot of Halloweens, a lot of Friday the 13th, a lot of Nightmare on Elm Streets that came before this movie. Mm -hmm. And so the genre needed to have some upending, some disruption of the status quo and some subversion of the genre to be able to make it, I think, effective to an audience that was growing bored mm -hmm. of the immortal stalking slasher villain that has no downsides, no benefits. People were getting to the point where they were like, this is predictable. I know what's going to happen and I know how they're going to do it. It's just masterful how they do play into the tropes that really don't matter as much like the, the whole like scary noises and you know the soundtrack it's really intense went and they're trying to make you think that the killer is one person but they're really not and it's like these these moments that don't really matter in the grand scheme of the plot and then they refuse the tropes uh when it really does you know affect the plot i had this weird feeling and i felt this every time i've watched this movie this is probably the third time i've seen it that every not every kill but most of the kills have like this strange kind of fantasy feel to them and i feel that i feel that way in in um nightmare on elm street too for obvious reasons they all have this kind of like weird dream kind of feel to it where like you're expecting the next scene to be like oh the person has woken up from a nightmare that was all a dream right, right? It, and that I don't know what it is about it. I don't know if it's because like Wes Craven has like etched that into our, our brains <laughs> to expect that kind of thing to happen. But it's just like this weird kind of like suspense of belief. And it is strangely realistic. And maybe that's what it is. It's like realistic. But at the same time, it's it feels like it's fake. Right. And it's very strange and unsettling on even another level. Well, it's interesting to think too, like in this movie they don't have that many kills really it's casey her boyfriend steve and then courtney cox's cameraman yeah and then tatum garage door girl <laughs> garage door girl and like they do they make it seem like dewey's dead they make it seem like gail's dead like Gail. richie's dead or randy randy they pretty much make it seem like every character is dead. Yeah, and they also make it seem like all of the characters could be the killer. <laughs> right. I think that's something that they do fairly well, but also in a cheesy way. 
And I think that they're mm-hmm. they're clearly trying to make it kind of like a whodunit kind of thing. <laughs> and right. they, yeah. they even I think it's Randy. Randy's basically like, you know, he's the horror movie buff. He's the one who's like, and he's very, very into it. And he's Mm -hmm. made out to be the guy who like nobody likes really, but he's just kind of like peripheral to their friend group. So like he's, he's there and he's kind of like, I don't know. But he, he at one point says everyone's a suspect. And and it's just like one of those self-awareness things is like, okay, now we're going to make you think it's Dewey and we're going to make you think it's the principal. And then they kill the principal right after they make it seem like, you know, it might mm-hmm. be him. Oh, they make you think it's Billy. And then, no, Billy's Billy's phone was somewhere else. Or, you know, his phone records yeah. are clean. And it's... But then it doesn't... They try to make Billy. it seem like it's Dewey. They try to kind of make it seem like it's her father. Like, right, they her do dad. a little That's bit of everything. One. Yeah. Yeah. And, in you know, like, her dad's not even there the whole time. So you're like, oh, yeah, it could definitely be her dad. Because, you know, we see all these other characters interacting with each other on screen. So it's got to be someone who's you know, not present. Mm-hmm. So it's a believable thing. And I kind of like how they, they mess around with that idea a lot, uh, sometimes in a serious way, like in the case of the dad and, and with with Dewey, I feel. But Dewey's also like made out to be like such a dope that it's like, okay, this this can't possibly be him. Yeah. And having two killers, I mean, that was blew- a twist minds right that's a that's such a good twist because and i think that it's alluded to i think that it's alluded to early on in the scene where matthew lillard has broken into uh cindy's Mm -hmm. house uh he's chasing her around and then her boyfriend billy you know comes in through the window and is like hugging her because as he's hugging her you see he's looking straight forward and i think in that moment it's sort of making reference to the fact that he's looking at matthew lillard well it's also that's that's the same scene where the cell phone falls out of his pocket yeah and she thinks it's him but it's like the the timing of that never could have worked out no so i'm not sure why it really entertains that so and and it's like yeah now watching it for you know the third the fourth the fifth time it's like oh yeah clearly that's the case because you know Stu is the other one yeah and I think Stu backed off in that moment because of Billy and it was clear that it was in an effort to make Billy look guilty and then to clear him Mm -hmm. the culpability of it is like pretty genius like they're they're both clearly psychopaths like just the the pure joy that they have in that last scene when they're they're revealing the whole like scheme to to sydney and her dad it's like okay like these guys are pretty messed up but Mm -hmm. they're pretty smart about it like they had a pretty solid like alibi built up with you know framing billy like he framed himself like that's crazy but then also didn't have the calls on the phone so it's like yeah and gave himself the perfect alibi well also like should that have gone to court and then this evidence comes up He's clear of, like, double jeopardy. Like, but by the rules of double jeopardy, like, if he was acquitted for yeah. these, of course he could have kept on killing and, you know, been charged with a different murder. But still, it's like... Right. <laughs> he could have stopped and then been yeah. fine. Yeah, and it's... it's um I think, in a way, it's sort of inspired, like, Murder by Numbers. Do you know Murder by Numbers? Yeah. The Sandra Bullock movie. Yeah, in that way where it's it's two men that are trying to prove that they can commit the perfect crime. 
And it's one of those things where in this, they are so aware of the horror movie tropes. And through the horror movie tropes, they have learned how to make themselves reliably innocent Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, factually innocent. And I think that that is one of the things that sort of makes this work in a way because there's something about Billy Loomis's character, the sort of like hunchiness to him, the the hair that is constantly wet. <laughs> um, it, it he just he looks like the killer, and they say that Randy says that. Yeah, in the, <laughs> that's a great scene. Yeah, when they're when they're in the blockbuster video r.i.p and you see this like whole thing play out and there is something i think to watching it because the first time that i watched it which was a long time ago i was like but no it it has to be billy right Mm -hmm. like just from the way that they present him aesthetically there's a lot of times, I think, in movies where you can just sort of know based on how the killer looks. Yeah, but they, they toy with your mind that way the whole time, and it's great mm-hmm. because of that. It's like, is it Billy? Like, it could be Billy. It's probably Billy. Okay, it's Billy. Wait, maybe it's not Billy. And and then Stu, like, you can tell he's kind of crazy even when he's not, yeah. you know, murdering people. And he's just kind of like, he's like a live wire, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... You're like, oh, it could now be him. Now, the question is, do you think Stu killed Casey? I don't know. I think he didn't. You think it was Billy? I think Billy has, up to the point in this movie, done all of the killing. Especially because there's something in the way Matthew Lillard delivers the line when they're having that little, you know, tete-a-tete outside where it's all of the, the groups together. Stu says... I've never killed nobody. And he like looks at, you know, Sydney and and Randy and Billy to say it. Mm-hmm. And there's something there's like you can tell in that moment there's like truth to it, but almost a little bit of maliciousness in a way that I think only Matthew Lillard could pull off. Well, yeah, remember <laughs> they're supposed to be playing psychopaths, so like they can lie so easily and make it they 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 believe it themselves is the thing right but there's there's something about that scene where i kind of believe it i kind of like the way that it's set up and there's something about to this movie shirking that i first of all i think that this is gonna get a little blue i think that there is something in horror movies that inextricably connects morality sexuality and violence in ways that are relatively obvious right mm-hmm. and i think that the murder got billy horned up and that's why he showed up at sydney's place afterwards i mean i agree with you i think it was billy who did the first kill and i think that it's more about like the way in which he kills people like because because there are a few different ways that they kill even though it's with a knife it's not just a simple stabbing at the beginning like whoever mm-hmm. it's whoever it very was very smart yeah they're like completely eviscerating their victims like steve and um casey they're like completely gutted and then later we know i think it's Stu was the one that killed his girlfriend right yeah 
So he didn't even actually stab her like he used the garage door, but he was he was going to like just stab. Yeah. And he's actually the one that ended up stabbing Sydney in the shoulder towards the end, right? So there's not like this, he's not looking to like slash, he's doing more of like a stabbing kind of thing. And I believe he also, it's kind of hard to tell at the point with the, the cameraman, like you can't really tell who it was at that point. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that one is, I think, a little bit more difficult, although I do believe it to be Stu, because I think that Billy was faking the, the well, death Right, because Stu is was the one, happening. Stu is the one where, like, it's the big chase scene towards the end. That's, like I said earlier, that's the one where he stabbed Sydney in the shoulder. So it probably was Stu, but that was, like, he slit his throat. He didn't just, like, he didn't completely gut him. He didn't, like, it wasn't, like, this mad, like, spree of like prey type killing it was just like all right get out of my way and so i think that that style of the murder is like more of his kind of thing whereas Mm -hmm. like billy is the one that seems to i don't know enjoy it more and and get a little bit more passionate about it and you can even see that when they're stabbing each other for the oh we were left for dead scheme uh to frame Sydney's father so and and so uh Stu stabs Billy once and Billy like just keeps stabbing Stu and he you can tell he's like getting like really upset with him over because they start fighting over whatever so yeah I think there's a lot more of like an emotional involvement with Billy and a lot more rage behind it and it's revealed why with Sydney's mother and his father having had an affair and that's the reason that his mother left and Mm-hmm. So he's kind of got, he actually has a personal stake in this where it seems like Stu is just doing it because, you know, peer pressure and uh, it seems fun. Yes. Right. And you and you get that in that like pathetic last line from Stu. Well, it's not in his last line, but he's like, oh, my parents are going to be so mad. <laughs> yeah. I love that line. Yeah. I, th- I think it tells a lot about his character. Yeah. Matthew Lillard just like has the energy to pull off something like that. And I can't think of another actor that could have replaced that role. I wonder if the reason that Stu, or rather more evidence that it is Stu with Tatum's kill, Tatum being his girlfriend, if that's why there's such a slowness to that kill compared to every other kill in the film, which is fairly quick, fairly brutal. That one still has the brutality, but there's like a hesitation behind it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel like a necessarily a malicious hesitation. It just feels like a hesitation. What's well, the? It's like the one where he doesn't like try to sneak up on her. You know, he tries yeah. to scare her first, and it's the whole thing of like where where she starts kind of sassing him and being like, "Oh, I want to be in the sequel," and she thinks it's all a big joke, and and it kind it of is. It kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> but then it ends up being serious. and That's one of my favorite parodies in the Scary Movie parody. You know, because Scary Movie so heavily parodies Scream. Right. Which is funny. There's this exact scene where they're in a parking garage and, and the ghost face killer comes up on him, on the girl. And she's just like, oh, I run, break my leg. And she twists and breaks her own ankle. <laughs> <laughs> and you see the person, whoever's playing the killer at that point, just sort of like... Uh, jump back a little bit because she just like starts like beating the shit out of herself (laughs) in this like parking garage as like a joke and he's just like whoa okay (laughs) and 
the other thing that I think that Scary Movie parodies well in this is the very strange homoerotic tension that's going on between mm-hmm. Billy and Stu. Yeah. Well, and, and the whole, that's like what makes the whole video store scene like really good. It's like one, it kind of develops Randy's character as, as you know, he confides in Stu a little bit of because he thinks Billy's a killer, but he's also like Billy's friend. And so it's like this weird dynamic between the three of them. But then Billy comes over and like Randy kind of gets sandwiched between Billy and Stu. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having seen this more than once, you you know, oh, OK, like it's like an intimidation factor at that point. But there yeah, is sure. this this weird kind of homoerotic like feel to that as well. And then Billy leaves and that's when Randy goes, you tell me that's not a killer. And it's it's weird because throughout the movie, I don't think I... The first time I saw it, I don't think I ever suspected Randy as the killer. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's like everyone, every character in the movie seems to think that it's Randy at first. Yeah, because he's the smartest person in the film. Well, he's also kind of like the social outcast. The thing, too, about like the, the tropes in this movie, you know, you have the typical like teenager element to it. And I love the fact that there is this sort of whodunit aspect that shirks the traditional, like, this killer is really an escaped mental patient or <laughs> a nightmare monster that died 30 years ago in a grain silo fire. Like, this one, it's very clearly like, okay, so it's one of us. Mm-hmm. While also sort of representing the traditional, like, teen group stereotypes and shirking them at the same time. Yeah. Because you have, you know, hot cheerleader. You have the nerdier girl or like the down-to-earth conservative girl. The virgin. Who in our case, yeah, the virgin who in our case is, is um, Sydney. And then you have Randy who is sort of like the geek, nerd, self-aware, knows what's happening. He is essentially like the voice of reason throughout that gets constantly ignored. Matthew Lillard's character sort of represents the stoner, but they don't have to actually ever show him smoking. They just do it in Matthew Lillard's like performance. (laughs) And then you have Billy who does not fit in with the rest of the potential tropes. Cause normally it's just like you have the cool bad boy, which, and he's not like a cool bad boy. He's just sort of like a, I hate his hair. And he's like, you got to remember where this is though. Cause like 96 kind of like getting into the late nineties, whereas like the, like the teen heart throb, like he, I think he's kind of like mm-hmm. that. This is the era of like boy meets world. And like, you know, exactly those kind of shows. So I think he's filling that kind of role within it. Yeah. He's filling that role. And also like, he's got sort of like a Leonardo DiCaprio look to him, especially in the hair. And I think that that's, like, part of it as well. Like, he's supposed to be a little creepy, but, like, also attractive in some way. But I just don't see it. And and I think that that's why it makes it clear, like, really early that it just has to be him. It gets really meta, right? It's like, it has to be him. Well, it can't be him because mm-hmm. they're expecting me to think that it's him. So we have to... And it gets, like, it gets really, really meta and you know, the logic goes in circles at that point. So then when when it does end up being him, it's like, okay, I guess I was right and also wrong. Do you Um, have trivia? Did you say you had trivia? I do have trivia. Oh my God. Are we going to do a, are we going to do a trivia thing again? It's been so long. I know it's been a long time. And the reason why I actually have trivia 
<laughs> it's because we were going to watch this like really early on. Remember? Yeah. And so I actually like put together a whole trivia thing with it. And then we ended up not watching it. So I just had like yeah. a Google Doc that had trivia in it. And so <laughs> we watched this movie back in probably a year before we watched the thing. I was still in Indiana. Yeah, it was a while. Yeah, it, this was like our fourth or fifth movie that we watched together. And I think it was two or three movies after this where we watched The Thing, right? I don't remember. We watched this, and then we watched As Above, So Below, and then we watched the Chernobyl movie, and then we oh, watched right. The Shining. Right. I, I think this this is the third time I've seen it, but every time I've seen this movie, I have seen it with you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I think the first time was like in college, right? And then... I definitely watched it in college because that was when I was going through my big Wes Craven phase. That was where I right. had all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. I watched all seven of them over the course of, I think, three weeks. I would just put one on in my dorm room and leave the door open and like invite people to come in and like sit for 20 minutes and just watch Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. So anyways, trivia. We got trivia and... I apparently thought to call this scream-inducing trivia, which is really not clever at all. This is probably why I don't do trivia anymore, because I can't think of a good name. But we got a lot of questions here. So, first question that you're almost certainly going to get. What was the original title for this movie? And I'll give you options if you need them. But... The Babysitter Murders. Oh, that was Halloween. I know. That was the joke. Oh, okay. Um. <laughs> Wow. Do you want options? Classic. They say it yeah, five times. Yeah, give me times. options. They say the name of the movie oh, five times. Oh, shoot. Uh, what is it? Uh, what are the options? Okay, so you got A, scary movie, B, murders in the dark, C, evil intentions, or D, scream or die. A scary movie, then. Yeah, I guess I kind of gave it away. They do say yeah. scary movie five times throughout it. I was trying to figure out if it was actually called Slash because in the universe of the Scream movies later on, they have movie versions of the events of these movies right. called Slash, mm -hmm. which, you know, gets even deeper into the, the meta <laughs> movement around this. But I couldn't remember for the life of me if that was a part of it, so... No, it was a scary movie, and then they decided, after they actually completed the movie, that they were going to call it Scream. Uh, I don't know yeah. why. But second question, Kevin Williamson, the writer, drew inspiration yes. from the Gainesville, Florida murders in 1990. He saw the yes. news of these murders and had nightmares about them that woke him up in the middle of the night. This is when he started writing Scream. How long did it take him to finish the screenplay? It's either going to be like five years or like a, a week. I'm going to go short. I'm going to say he knocked it out relatively quickly. So between th three to five days. Uh, low end of that. Three, to three, three days. Three days. Wow. I can only uh, imagine he just stayed up for, you know, 60 mm -hmm. hours writing this. So yeah. yeah he, definitely he not on cocaine. <laughs> three days. Maybe it's because he couldn't, he couldn't fall asleep because of these nightmares. I don't know. Yeah, scaly. <laughs> Cocaine nightmares. <laughs> Cocaine nightmares. Okay, yeah. So, question three. Miramax ended up buying the script with a caveat. What was that caveat? Probably they had to cut a lot of the more graphic stuff 
because I remember in one of the special features, there's a thing about Casey's death. They had to try and like blur a little bit of the of the gore the from Casey's death. Yeah, the entrails. Yeah, you're exactly right. They had to reduce the amount of gore. Next question. So they had a choice of directors, including mm-hmm. Sam Raimi, Robert Rodriguez, Danny Boyle, and Wes Craven, of course. Why mm-hmm. was Wes Craven chosen for this film? Because Wes Craven is a more experienced filmmaker. Uh, no, actually, he was the only director who saw the film as more than a comedy. Uh, okay. I think would have made this movie terrible if someone had treated it as just a comedy because it would have just been like a a scary movie i agree which which is weird you know in an alternate universe they went with a different director and it was just called scary movie and it was it became the scary movie franchise and because of the number of times that they say scary movie in this movie i'm gonna say it's a good move to have changed the name to scream yeah although that would have been just one more level of reference right but i think that when you take so much so so much of the referential material of this movie is internalized like it all exists within the universe of the movies mm-hmm. you know there are some movies in which halloween was never a thing you know they didn't they didn't have a nightmare on elm street they didn't have a friday the 13th but because those things exist in the universe as we are to believe it when they make references to it it makes sense. I think to take something then like the name of the movie as scary movie, you externalize one of those references. And so mm-hmm. then I think it becomes yeah. too obvious. Yeah, you're right. You're, I, I, I agree. I'm glad that they went with Scream. And yeah, also, because I, then you you start wondering, okay, like are the are the things that they are saying fourth wall breaking now? And, and and I think that by calling it something other than scary movie, when they say scary movie in the movie, it doesn't feel like a wall break. The only time is the is at the end. Like the Not in my movie. No, it's the very last I can't remember exactly how it's delivered, but it's the very last time that someone says scary movie and i think it's like the news because it ends with like the news report thing like fading out right with uh gail and i I really can't remember and it's it 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 like ends with like it's something out of a scary movie it's the way that she says it that seems like it breaks oh yeah yes i I can't remember if that's exactly what it is but it's something along those lines Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And remember, in California, no one cares if you scream.